last Lord's Day, the fact that we had folks away from us, and also the fact I just had so much in the way of introductory material to the Beatitudes. Um, I took our study time, or took our time, that uh, it's usually a week for op- for open forum or questions and answers, and we read, and we just looked at some of those introductory matters. Again, through the summer, I'm hoping to preach through the Beatitudes, and uh, given myself the eight weeks, I'll be here. Uh, the time to do an introductory message was what we did last week, and then to do um, messages on seven Beatitudes in the subsequent weeks. And I want to keep to that schedule. I'm do my absolute best to keep to that schedule. But since I had so much of it, the introductory material, the Sunday school was a good place to just give 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 you that um, that stuff, uh, and not be tempted to do two or three introductory studies. So. At any rate, uh, I want to get back to that introductory study. I want to get back to complete it. Again, we have folks away from us this Lord's Day as well, and hopefully when we're all back together, we'll continue the studies we began to do on the subject of the covenants. And uh, do pray for me with respect to that. I'm trying to do something of an exhaustive study of the covenants, and I'm I'm just seeing things in Scripture that I was never taught before. (laughs) I was wondering who else has seen some of the things I'm seeing, and it may not be a a while before I find out that someone has. It's always interesting. I I was taught, uh, be suspicious of anything new. And in general, that's a, a fairly good rule. Because, I mean, God's truth has been with this church for, you know, 2,000 years. And we're not looking for novelty. That's one of the problems that Paul experienced in Athens. When the people sat around to say and to hear nothing but something new. Novelty was the thing in our day, too. Everybody wants to hear something new. Anytime you hear a sales pitch, it's new and improved. And we think somehow we're going to improve upon Scripture with something new. But then again, there are, there's always things we take for granted that at one time was new. There's always things that we have discovered in the history of the church that at one time people didn't teach before, and people didn't believe before. And the very study of the covenants is an example of that. And there's some people that think, well, we've been taught this covenant theology. It has to go back to the apostles. It has to be something Jesus taught. But in actuality, it's a 17th century thing. But yet, from the 17th century, a lot of people think it's good. A lot of people think it's clarifying. A lot of people think it's helpful in understanding God's word. And, and, and for, to that extent that it is, well and good. The new is not necessarily the, uh, the enemy of, of, of the truth. It just means we haven't seen it before. That doesn't mean it's not there. And it doesn't mean other people haven't seen it and didn't write a book about it. <laughs> That's the other thing. Most of the time when we think we've seen something that no one else has seen, um, that's because we're only, we only know about what people have written down. And maybe some Christian in, in uh, Topeka, Kansas has seen exactly what I saw this week in my study, but we haven't gotten together to talk about it. And we, unless one of us writes a book, we're probably never going to know. Anyway, so... Uh, pray for me as I uh, uh, address this subject. What uh, for me is a little bit more in the way of a comprehensive overview uh, that God would give me light and understanding and an ability to distinguish between um, what's, it's, what's important and what maybe what is not. So uh, again, uh, um, be in prayer for that. But I want to get back uh, to the Beatitudes. Uh, last week I endeavored principally to um, express to you why it is I'm only addressing seven of the Beatitudes and not eight uh, because and, or nine because there's actually nine statements with the word makarios that's the Greek word for blessed um, and yet I'm saying that there's really seven that provide a unit, un, a unit of thought 
uh, seven that have a basic uh, unity with one another. I don't think you can really take those seven and really separate them. They're just part of a of a, a way in which we're instructed about the subject of Christian character in a way that the seven Beatitudes um, is just very helpful in um, understanding um, how you get to the place where blessed blessedness is uh, the operating reality of Christian life and experience. And a lot of times when you have seven things in the scriptures, I've talked to you this before, it's that central thing that becomes um, something of a fulcrum around which everything turns. It's the center of the subject. Um, and also the, the, it's the thing that provides unity to the subject as well. Not to get into what's the center of the um, nine fruits of the Spirit. There's nine that's there. So there would be a center one with respect to the fifth. I think it's kindness. Just how that would operate in that context, I'm not prepared to say. Um, It's not always true that the central thing is the main thing. But with the fruit of the Spirit, you can see that's a teaching that comes in a grouping of nine things in which there is a singular fruit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And when I go to the market and... uh, I see that there's uh, fruit to be bought. Um, I see I have a wide selection. And I pick and choose what I want. Whether if I want apples, well, we got a whole selection of apples. Do you want a Rome apple? you want a Cortland apple? you want a Macintosh apple? you want an Ant? There's all kinds of apples. Um, I think the Fijis are the... I love, I love those. Those are good. The Gala are really good. But you have your opinion, and you can pick and choose, and you take what you want, and you leave the rest. If you decide you can have a pear, or you got a Boscan Anjou, and you have a Bartlett, you choose a bunch that's there, or different kinds of berries. Well, um, there's a singular fruit. It's not fruits, and you can't pick and choose and say... Well, I think love and peace are great, but self-control, man, that's just not me. So I'm going to throw that out the, out of, out the window. Um, no, it's a singular fruit. And where the Spirit of God is present and active and working in the life of God's people, all of those um, qualities of the fruit of the Spirit are present in the life. I might say something like this in the morning service. I think I might have it in my notes. I, I'm just thinking ahead and and also uh, just giving you a sense of why I think this is a unity that's here and then um, but it's a sevenfold unity of which uh, hunger and thirst is the central thing and I'll say more about that definitely in the morning service is why I think that that's true but um, what do you do with persecuted what do you do with the final blessed well that's the reaction that the character of the people of God that are described in verses 2 to nine, that's what we experience in the hands of the world. The world will persecute the godly character of the righteous subjects of King Jesus. Um, and then we're told that the person who is persecuted is not to consider himself to be the most disadvantaged um, person in the world. We're not to be crushed and broken. Under the weight of the persecution, we're to consider ourselves blessed. It's blessed to have this character and it's blessed to bear the indignities of a fallen world for the character of godliness that God in his grace confers upon his children. And so it's the reaction of the 
persecuted and how we're to react to that. And then the converse part is that along with the persecution comes progress. I'll put this on the bulletin board. First, with respect to making the major division, I think, that you find in the Sermon on the Mount uh, between the Beatitudes and the rest of the sermon. Again, we're only going to be dealing with the Beatitudes in our morning worship, but I want to see it in the light of the whole picture of the Sermon on the Mount. And that this is a distillation of Christian character. These are the things that comprise Christian character. It's interesting, when you read it in the original, it, there's no verb that's to be found. Now, you do find two verbs in uh, the fourth of them. That's why I think the, that's the central one. And the, the central one involves what we do. We, but the, 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 the things that precede it, it just says, blessed, poor in spirit. Not, not a verb. It's not, it's not even a state of being verb. It's not blessed are they that do anything or blessed that they that are anything. It's just bless the poor in spirit, bless the mourners, bless the meek, bless the merciful, bless the pure in heart, bless the peacemakers. It's not what you do, it's what you are. It's character inwrought by the grace of God in the lives of God's people that's being described here. And it's character that I believe in the first three empties you of yourself. Of self-will, self-absorption, self-pleasing, self-righteousness. Every aspect of the life of the self brings us to see nothing in here that's any good. Nothing in here that can bring any advantage, any benefit. We're poverty-stricken, we're mourners, we're meek. Just in the light of our own self-awareness of the reality of our sin and our need. And it's that dissatisfaction that we have in ourselves and we cast that off. And these are all self-emptying sort of things that leads us to hunger and to thirst for something better. We'll never seek in God if we, the, uh, the things of God if we're so happy with the things of self. The things of God and the things of self, they don't mix really. Self-will, self-pleasing, self-righteousness, self-absorption does not cannot coexist with self-denial and Christ's preeminence and God being all in all. When we're at the center of things, uh, God is not. And so those three first three just are self-emptying things that make us dissatisfied with ourselves. So we hunger and thirst for righteousness and then ensue the mercifulness and the peaceableness and the, I'm sorry, the purity and the peaceableness that, that follows. And so you have the character of the believer, what we are. And then resulting from that is the conduct that follows. Those that are, have this character find that their conduct results from our character. We do what we do because we are who we are. It has to begin with what we are. That we are the redeemed of the Lord. That we are the regenerate people of God. We are the Holy Spirit filled people of God. We are the people that have this inwrought distrust of ourselves and wholehearted trust in the living God that we're hungering and thirsting for Him and we make these things the principal concerns and pursuits of our lives is because we are what we are, we do what we do and so I think that's the way in which this is to be understood and so the rest of the Sermon on the Mount deals with the results of the character that the Beatitudes describes and as a result, we conduct ourselves in the face of persecution, not as martyrs with a martyr complex or woe is me or with depression and sadness and gloom, but rejoicing and be exceedingly glad knowing that great is our reward in heaven. 
Um, we are those that are involved in the midst of the persecution we face from the world with the progress of the gospel in the world for the good of the world. Instead of growing sour on the world and growing hateful to the world and being bitter towards the world, we love the world. We want to see the world become the Lord's. The, the, first of all, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We want that get, to get recognized. We want the world to come to know our God. And we endeavor to function in the world as light and as far as well, salt and light. Pres- preservative and illumination. That's what God's people do in the world. Well, maybe pres- preservative flavoring and illumination. We provide for the world what the world so desperately needs. And we're in the place, because of our character, to do the world a world of good. It's not just enough to preach to the world. We have to preach to the world bearing the character of the righteous. Because the world's not going to be convinced by a bunch of hypocrites and phonies. You know, the world grows skeptical towards those sort of things. At least the world can say, well, I don't believe what he believes, but he sure does. <laughs> that's, that's something that's compelling and convincing. The world gets rebuked when they see that God's people have this stick to this perseverance and faith and holiness, not because we're stubborn, but because we're transformed. But because we've come and we've met with Jesus and we come to know the reality of a new creation, that we, we have been made these new creatures in Christ and we conduct ourselves in the world that leads simultaneously to the world's persecution and yet to the progress of the church. You see that fleshed out in the book of Acts. As, as the church is being persecuted, the church is growing. God's people are having an impact even as the world is seeking to suppress the truth. It just doesn't seem that that works. The only thing that that hinders the progress of the church is when God's people say, well, I don't want to be persecuted, so I'm just going to shut my mouth and not live as a Christian and not show forth uh, the praises of him who's called me out of darkness into marvelous light. The gospel doesn't work in a world where people are not prepared to say Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But where God's people are prepared to say Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, then God, God can use that in the lives of other people and will use that in the lives of other people. So again, we are who we are. Let's be who we are in the world that even in the face of persecution we might know uh, that the work of the Lord will continue on and progress generations to come because Jesus has said he will build his church against which the gates of Hades shall not prevail. And then the Sermon on the Mount also speaks in this next section in 17 through 20 of the purpose of Jesus coming into the world, which is to be a purpose that we not only recognize, but it's a purpose, the ends of which we share. We're to share in that, having the character of the righteous and hearing that Jesus says he's not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He's not come to say the Old Testament was for the Jews, now we're going to start doing all things new. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says he's come not to destroy or abolish the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, where I've come to fulfill them. Right down to jot and tittle um, realities, the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter, everything is part of the divine counsel and will be accomplished. And therefore, we can't relax any of the commandments. We can't say none of it applies. Even the things that really we don't do as Christians have a pertinence for instruction. It has a, a reason for being in the scriptures so that we would know um, who God is and on what terms we make our approach to God. You think of the whole temple worship or tabernacle worship. We don't do that. We don't have a tent of meeting and there's a 
uh, three sections of it, an outer court and the holy of hol- a holy place and a holy of holies. We don't approach God in that way. Uh, we approach God to, through Christ who's exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. And yet that whole matter of holiness is instructive. These matters of we're a distance from God until one comes into the presence of God. For Jesus it's in heaven. The high priest would come upon earth into the presence of God and cleanse the temple with the offerings of the Day of Atonement. Jesus entered into the holy place not made with hands in the heavens. And he has purged our sins. And we can come to God through him. But it's instructive. It tells us about holiness. It tells us about atonement. It tells us about the way of approach to God. And so even though we don't do it, Paul calls those things shadows of the things to come the substance of which is Christ and so these are things that are meant to said uh, have a, a shadow that has a substance to it and so Christ is the substance so Christ is in some way to be seen in that sacrificial system and I think very clearly he is to be seen and because the language of the sacrificial system is, is used with respect to Jesus his death being a burnt offering, a sacrifice unto God, um, that propitiation, all those that language, it's Old Testament language having to do with the sacrificial cult, the, the cult of worship that was done, a cult today means, I know, something outside of the Bible, but a cult really means just a ritual. The ritual that was being done in the Old Testament scriptures has significance to teach us about our Lord Jesus. So anyway, uh, that purpose we affirm. That purpose we see. We want to be whole Bible Christians, even as Jesus came, not to set apart the word or abolish it or to put it aside, but to fulfill it. We want both the things that that led up to His coming, the promise of His coming, um, the, the fulfillment of all things in Him and through Him, that's all part of divine counsel to us. And, um, and, and then we're not to be like the Pharisees, just taking parts of it that we like, and, or, or taking the teachings of God's Word and just externalizing it, or just making it something that's a, um, uh, something they add to, something that they make man's law rather than God's law. There's all sorts of things that the Pharisees and scribes were involved in that just made um, void the word of God. Remember Jesus said that in chapter 15, that you make void the, 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 the word of God by your traditions. It's by your traditions. You just, you're the ones that are nullifying the law. Not me. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to bring the law to its full understanding in me. You're nullifying the law by your traditions, by the things you add to it. And you say it's no longer important for anybody to honor his father and mother if you bring the, the offering to the temple. You, you do the Corbin offering and you're just off scot-free. You don't anything to care for your father and mother. That's, ri- that's wicked. That's terribly r- ridiculous. You have a responsibility to honor your father and mother. And you can't just leave them in the lurch and say, oh, I gave it to the temple, so let somebody else do it. No, that's your responsibility. So the scribes and Pharisees are doing all sorts of things like that. And so we have to have a righteousness that's whole, whole Bible, that's bringing into bear, to bear upon our lives everything that the Scripture says. So um, Jesus' purpose is our purpose because our character uh, corresponds to Jesus, relates to Jesus, submits to Jesus, desires Jesus, wants Jesus glorified in us. So his purpose is our purpose, to be whole Bible Christians. And then there's the precepts that come. 
in uh, verse 21 to the end of the chapter. And uh, you have that formula that's used. You've heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, I say to you. Now the I say to you is part of what the people that heard this sermon were astonished at, that he taught them with authority and not as the scribes. You know, you know, you know the rabbis teach. You ever hear? You ever hear a, a, a rabbi's message in a Jewish service? Anybody? No. Just once. Okay. Did you hear what Rabbi Akiva said, or what Rabbi um, names aren't occurring to me right now? <laughs> what Hillel said or what Shimei said or what someone else said that's how they teach they're calling upon the authorities of the rabbis the interpretations of scripture that was given in the, their commentaries upon scripture the rabbinical commentaries uh, the Mishnas and the Targums and all the other things that were written as commentaries and so that's how they understand the scriptures it's in the light of what the tradition has said about this that or the next now again Christians do that too. We say, as Calvin said, or as Augustine said, or as Athanasius said about the Trinity. And you know, we have a rich tradition of biblical scholars, of people that have um, studied the Word of God. And, and we just can't ignore that and say that tradition is nothing to say to us, as if the only light we have is what comes to us today in our, our, our situation and ignore the entirety of the history of the church and its interpretation of God's Word. Yet we we don't take that that as 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 the authorities. We have to go back to the the sources, which is God's word, and come back to what the Scripture in fact has said. And of course, the great teacher from the Scriptures is Jesus, the God who spoke um, times past to the fathers through the prophets has at the end of these days spoken to us in His Son. And everything that prior to Christ coming and speaking was the scriptures that bore witness of him. And so we see Christ in the totality of the scriptures. And Jesus speaks with authority. I say to you. And you've heard it was said to those of old. It's just a rabbinical way of teaching. You've heard it was said to those of old by Rabbi Akiba or Rabbi so-and-so. This is the teaching of the tradition. And so they taught. And again, I don't think he's quoting Moses here. I think he's quoting rabbinical commentary on Moses. I don't think he's saying that, well, the Ten Commandments says you shall not do murder, and uh, that's really incorrect, and I have to improve on that. No, I think Jesus lets that stand. I think what he's concerned is that um, he says, whoever murders will be liable to judgment, is the way in which rabbinical commentary begins to expand and expound the word. And so the judgment would be the Jewish law courts. The judgment would be be brought before the Sanhedrin. The judgments would be um, something in addition. But Jesus, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. And that's probably not so much speaking about eternal judgment, although it may be. But there's all these aspects of judgment that Jesus says is, is belonging to people whose sin never breaks out in outward, outward murder, but the seething murder of the heart, the bitterness of the soul, the inner anger of the heart. Um, Jesus is saying that's just as important 
these scribes and Pharisees think as long as I've never done the actual act of murder everything's good I'm okay God's pleased with me I'm a righteous man No, not really. I mean, that, most people live their lives without taking the taking human life. But yet many of them will say in that day, Lord, Lord, or they won't say Lord, Lord, and they will be damned. They will be judged. Their sins have not been atoned for. But Jesus says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And that's definitely the Sanhedrin he's talking about here, the Jewish law courts. In other words, um, that's something that needs to be taken into account as well. I remember when we got to Germany, there were certain uh, gestures that people would do uh, that actually could get you a fine. You actually get stopped by the police. If you are, if you are driving in your car and you go, go dunk off, <laughs> basically, dunk off. That was actually something that cops would ticket you for. You weren't supposed to be doing that. And I think that's reflective of a biblical understanding, is that you need to respect your neighbor. You, you shouldn't be disgracing them. You shouldn't be belittling them. Because part of what, what murder involves is that you're a dumb cough. You're nobody. You're nothing. You don't count. And we so diminish people, and we diminish the reality that these are image bearers of God, worthy of regard, worthy of respect. It's when we lose that sense of the dignity of human life. And we just dismiss people and disregard people as nobodies and nothings. This is what the Nazis did. The Nazis made Jews to be microbes and bacilli. They were, they were germs upon society. And they had to be eradicated. And you have cultures that do that to other groups. They make them germs and they make them things that have to be eradicated um, so much of what just goes on in, in, in societies that commit genocide tribe against tribe is just rooted in that kind of thinking so murder really begins in the heart it begins in the mind it begins how you view your neighbor it begins with what you think about them and so really what Jesus is doing here is he's expand, expounding what Moses meant when he says you shall not murder Murder, uh, Jesus is not just saying don't, I'm sorry Moses was not just saying don't do the act but that whole law is governed by the well first of all the first commandment you shall have no other gods before me and then the tenth commandment that um, you shall not covet and all of that makes matters of life a matter of religious um, commitment to God and a matter of the heart because you don't covet externally you covet within you covet within your soul. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's fulfilling the law in terms of giving us a real sense of what the law actually means. What it mandates of us. So sometimes we think the fulfilling of the law was just going to the cross and dying for our sins and fulfilling the sacrificial system. Well, sure, he did that. But there's other aspects in which the law was fulfilled. This thing was done that it might fulfill, fulfill that which was spoken by the prophets saying... Everything that Jesus does in some way or another fulfills what the law said, either in his own person or in the instruction that he gives. Here's instruction that's giving fulfillment. It's giving a, the true sense of what God's word means and not what the scribes and Pharisees are telling you that it means, but what it actually does mean in the context in which it was itself given. 
And so then Jesus gives this uh, advice. Well, first of all, when you bring your gift to the altar, uh, and you remember your brother is something against you, this is your brother. This is your brother. And you're you're alienated with with your brother. Your brother is alienated towards you. And, and, you, and you want to come to the God who is the God of peace, the God who reconciles us to, to, to himself through the death of his son, and think, well, I can just come with a hard heart and a bitter spirit and enmity towards my brother and just think that's okay. And as if God doesn't take notice. Jesus says, wait a minute. This religious offering you're bringing has no value in the presence of God. Well, that bitter heart remains. Um, Isaiah said, I cannot bear iniquity and the solemn meeting. He says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double mind. Now, that's James 4. But he says something similar to that in uh, Isaiah chapter 1. That we need to repent. We need to turn away from our sins. We need to cleanse our hands and cleanse our hearts and come to God with the right spirit and the right attitude. And so Jesus, Jesus says, leave, leave your, your offering and go and reconcile with your brother. And then come and offer your gift. And then he says to come to terms quickly with your accuser. If someone has something against you, he's accusing you of something. So what does that mean to me? He's accusing me of something? Leave it alone. Jesus says no. Go to him. Come to terms with him. Find out what's going on. Why he's thinking what he's thinking. And look for conditions of peace. Go to court with him. You might just find yourself being let out in handcuffs. You might just find that the judge is going to rule against you, and you're going to find yourself in in prison. And a lot of people want to see hell in that. Again, it may be there. I think Jesus has given just an illustration of of the perils of not living with peace with our our neighbors, peace with others. We are to be the reconcilers. Again, part of our character is that matter of being peacemakers. Of being peacemakers. And this is how this gets fleshed out in the stuff of life. As we have the precepts of God's word bearing not just upon the outer life, but the inner life as well. What he does with anger, he does the same thing with lust. It's not a question of actual committal of adultery, of going to bed with someone that's not your wife, but it's lustful intentions and lustful thoughts within the heart. And um, we need to deal with it. We need to mortify it. We need to um, put it to death. Tear it out. Like you would an offending eye. Um, It's better to lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. If you have a diseased limb, they're going to cut it off uh, to save your life. Um, If you say it's too dear, you're going to lose your life. Jesus says, with respect to these sins, you're going to lose your life. You're going to be cast into hell. It's not worth keeping. It's not worth doing. It's not worth persisting in this course of living. You need to address it at its roots. And the roots are in the heart. Same thing with respect to divorce. Um, It's not just enough to give her a certificate of divorce. There's certain circumstances in which Moses says that can be done, but as Jesus is going to go on to say in chapter 19, Moses permitted you to do it for the hardness of your heart. Um, no, you need to love your wife. You need to adhere to your wife. You're to cleave to your wife. Um, you're not to put her away. 
Same thing with oaths. They had all kinds of traditions with respect to what constituted more serious oaths when you took vows and said, I will do this and I swear by this or I swear by that. Wait a minute, you're swearing in the presence of God. And let your nay be nay, or your, uh, your yes be yes, and your no be no. I mean, you don't even need to swear a vow once you've given your word. You know, vows are sworn because people don't trust your word. And why should they not trust your word if you're a person of honesty? Seek to be honest and transparent before other people and the things that you say. And you'll have no need to swear a vow. People say his word is his bond. He's trustworthy. She's trustworthy. I trust what they say. They're not given to lying. Usually these different kinds of vows are, are done because people don't trust you and they have reason not to trust you. As you try to say, oh, you really, really can trust me because I swear upon this or I swear upon that or I swear upon the next thing. And I really, really mean it when I swear upon my mother's grave. Right. Okay. You don't need to do that. Why do that? Because you know they don't trust you and you need to say something that's going to get them to say, okay, for that sake, he really went far. So he must mean it this time. When you know in your heart you really don't. No. Be trustworthy. So all these things are addressed to the matters of the heart. The law impinges upon the inner life. It, had, it, t- it touches at, at the roots of our relationships with others that really are matters of the heart. No one ever gets divorced without his heart apostatizing from his wife, falling away from loving his wife. He stood at an altar one time. He said, till death do us part. I will honor you. I will cherish you. And most guys mean it when they say those words at the altar. What happens? They let their hearts not be kept for their wives. They bring other women into their minds and into their hearts. And that's the thing that Jesus is warning against. Therefore, the law really calls us to take these sanctities that God's word and to understand how they govern not just the externals, but the internals of life as well. Well, unless I need... We've gone through much of this before in other times. If there's any need to go through any of the particulars that Jesus moves on here, he deals with the what's called the, the Lex Talionis. You ever hear the Lex Talionis? When you, when you have a good Latin word, it's always good to bring it in. That means uh, the law of, of uh, reprisal or retribution. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You take my eye, I take yours. You take my hand, I take yours. And um, Jesus says that's, that's the law of the jungle. Now, the law was given in the Old Testament to regulate um, what, the, what, what retaliation can bring to not allow it to go further. There's a lot of people are going to go and say, well, you took my eye, I'm taking your life now. You did this to me, I'm going to go much, much, much further. And so this was a law that was not meant to take people's eyes and hands, but to say you really can't go any further than what you've, what you've lost. It's meant to restrain. It's not meant to say, well, here's a principle to go out and make everybody eyeless and toothless. I'm quoting Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> when, uh, I think it was Muttle that said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And Tevye's response in Fiddler on the Roof was, well, then we'd all be eyeless and toothless. <laughs> no, that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it was to restrain retaliation. And Jesus goes even further. 
and says, if they're going to slap you on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. Don't retaliate at all. Go the extra mile. They would take your tunic, give him your cloak. The one who begs from you, do not refuse him who would borrow from you. Take the loss. Suffer the loss. Love your enemy, not hate him. Not bear bitterness towards him. Pray for them. God makes his sun to shine upon the just and the unjust, his rain to fall upon the good and the evil. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's what the character of the righteous will bring us to do. Take the precepts of God to heart. And in humility of heart and mind, seek not to be standing upon principles of right, my rights, over and against everyone else's. Trample over their rights if I can. But you to be serving others. You to be loving others. You to be going the extra mile with others. You to be recognizing that God's precepts are precepts that are deep. We to be embedded within the soul. How we act and react towards other people you move into chapter 6 and it really moves away from our relationships with other people how Christian character operates there in terms of anger in terms of lust in terms of divorce in terms of oaths and retaliation and enemies and uh, moves into chapter 6 into this whole area of of, of piety piety Um, you know what piety is? That's a word that we use uh, sometimes. So a lot of times it's impiety that we use more than anything else. What's not pious? Piety is a word that speaks of devotion. It speaks of our heart's commitment uh, to the living God. Um, it speaks of um, well, understanding divine holiness and how we relate to the Holy One of Israel. And it's in religious practices that piety is expressed. Um, And so when Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, he's not talking about the relational righteousness that chapter 5 was talking about. But you have to do that before other people. Turn the other cheek. Uh, uh, Pray for them. Uh, you, uh, you have to relate to people in, 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 in the real world. But now this is a righteousness that is not horizontal, but it's vertical. It's in terms of your relationship to God. It's the kind of righteousness that's expressed in acts of religious worship. Thus, when you give to the needy, now, the sense of which given to the needy is an act of relational righteousness, but yet the reality that Jesus is looking to impart to his people is that this giving to the needy or the poor is not to be an act that's looking to get so much attention with the eyes of other people. Looking upon you, say, oh, what a generous person he is. Oh, look at the foundation that rich folk, those rich people set up the Rockefeller Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, all these foundations in which people who are filthy rich and have more wealth than ever could be imagined uh, give basically proportionally 
probably a whole lot less than the widow's might. <laughs> and they, uh, it's better than doing nothing for the poor and the needy. We should be thankful that they do they at least go that far. In fact, the Rockefeller Foundation is an, is an interesting thing because uh, John D. Rockefeller Sr. spent his life with a he was a Baptist. He grew up in a Baptist church and with somebody in the Baptist church that said to him, make all the money that you can and give away all the money that you can. And so he really did well on that first part, making all the money that he could. But he actually hired a guy to do the charitable part of it. A pastor, actually, who was hired on by Rockefeller to give away his wealth. But it was only certain things he would do and he would go no further. His son, John D. II, who grew up in the Baptist church and saw what his father did in terms of gaining so much wealth, he was actually the one that did most of giving away the wealth of the Rockefeller family. It's not that they're not plentiful rich still, but nonetheless, that whole enterprise of giving away to the Rockefeller Foundation was the, um, the next generation who really sought to do that. In fact, some of the Rockefeller people decided that the children, the grandchildren, decided they didn't even want to be have the family name. Um, it was, I guess, a little bit ashamed of, of, of the grandfather's cutthroat, cutthroat policies in gaining wealth, and they just determined that they uh, they just didn't want to live as a Rockefeller. They just wanted to um, disassociate themselves from the family wealth, and many of them just gave away. Um, much of what they did. You, you ever wonder why Jay Rockefeller, one of the Rockefeller grandchildren, became the governor of West Virginia? I mean, they're New Yorkers. What are they doing in West Virginia, becoming the governor of West Virginia? Uh, Winthrop also was governor of um, Arkansas. How did they get out to Ro- Arkansas from New York? Well, um, at least with Jay Rockefeller, he b- became interested in West Virginia because he was a Peace Corps volunteer. <laughs> he went from the high state of uh, you know, Rockefeller wealth to serving in the Peace Corps. And then he became aware of the needs in Appalachia and in the, amongst the poverty-stricken in West Virginia. And he thought he could be some, someone who could go there and actually help uh, people. I, I just think that's interesting. But the point is, people do this. They do this philanthropy stuff to gain rep, a re- reputation. My family has a bad reputation because they were cutthroat uh, in business and so now we want to have a good reputation, so we'll give. That's their motivation. Jesus says the motivation is not to be seen by men. It's to be seen by God. It's to be doing this as an act of religious worship before the Lord. The act of giving is an act of worship. It's an act of, of piety and service to God. He that has mercy upon the poor... Uh, lends to the Lord, as one of the Proverbs says. You give to the poor and you lend to the Lord. The Lord will repay. The Lord is the one before whom you give the things that you give to others. So uh, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that you're seeing, giving maybe in secret, and your father, who sees in secret, will reward you, as the Proverbs says that he will. The reward is not necessarily in, in, in money, but it's in the reality of God's own smile and favor and blessing that's upon those who give to the poor. Blessed is he who gives to the poor. One of the Psalms begin. Um, and then prayer comes in to play. And of course, that's directly, clearly devotional, coming before the presence of God. And yet there are people who pray to be seen of men. 
Jesus says the Pharisees did that very thing. They'd find the cheap places in the synagogues or in the streets. They'd stand and they'd start their devotions. Oh, Heavenly Father, bless this benighted people. (laughs) Help them to see the great things I've seen. I thank you, Lord, I'm not like other men. Of course, that's another prayer that's found in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Praying in the public place, in a prominent place. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like other men. Oh, really? You're just like other men. That's, that, that's a lie and a delusion. Only by the grace of God is anyone different from anybody else. It, we all have the seeds of all kinds of wickedness within our hearts and minds. But it's God who's to be the object of our, our prayers. We're not to pray thus to ourselves, as Jesus said that Pharisee did, or to pray to be seen by people in the street corners, to be seen by others. Jesus says they, they've gotten a reward. That's what they wanted, that's what they'll get, but they won't get anything from God. Prayer is to be prayed in the presence of God. In the secret place where your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then Jesus gives the example of the model prayer. All prayer should in some ways conform to these great concerns that Jesus says we're to pray. Like um, praying to our Father in heaven. Praying for the hallowing of his name, setting apart of the name of God. We pray for the name of God to be set apart in the world, the kingdom of God to come, the will of God to be done. And those three petitions, I think they've told you this before. Um, Unfortunately, many of our Bibles say, hallowed be your name, period. Um, But no, it's hallowed be your name, comma. Your kingdom come, not period, but comma. Your will be done, and then on earth as it is in heaven modifies all of that because God's name is hallowed perfectly in heaven God's kingdom is perfectly expressed in heaven he's the king of glory he reigns it's on earth that's the problem it's that heavenly kingdom needs to come to the earth it's the hallowing of God's name that needs to come to this earth it's a doing of his will that needs to come to this earth and that's what we're praying for in the words of this prayer of the concerns of God his name, his kingdom, his will to be done on earth as is done in heaven. And all prayer should in some way be reflective of those concerns of God. The name of God to be known, the kingdom of God to come, the will of God to be done. And then our concerns come into play and in that we pray for our material needs in the form of daily bread um, We pray for our spiritual needs in terms of our sins, our need of forgiveness. We pray for our need to be kept from the temptation of sin and to be delivered from evil. So we're given a model prayer. And again, the righteous character of the people of God recognize that those are the principal issues that should be governing the prayer life. And our hearts and minds say amen to this. And so along then with giving to the needy and praying, there's the matter of fasting. Uh, don't be like the hypocrites uh, looking to have the, um, people see that we're fasting because we're, well, we go around telling them or we go around showing them, oh man, haven't eaten in days and you show it on your face. No, no. Um, don't anybody know. This is an act of religious devotion to be done in the presence of God. And then it moves on to priorities. The priority of, again, heavenly treasure. 
the priority of serving not two masters, but God alone, the priority of his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek this first, and all these things will be added unto you. And then in the face of seeking those priorities, our anxieties about the things of this life will grow strangely dim in the light of those greater priorities we're called upon to lose sleep over. It's amazing how many people will lose sleep over the things of this life, the things of this earth, and their care for about the church of Christ is, is so indifferent. They'll never shed a tear. They'll never lose a moment's rest or sleep. They'll never have much in the way of concern at all about these far greater matters that should be the priority of the people of God. But again, it's having the Christian character that's going to be evidence in what you prioritize, what you think are the most important things. Then the sermon, of course, ends with a bunch of, you know how the epistles end? Oftentimes it says uh, general principles. Paul just gives you kind of like a bunch of things that he throws at the churches. Well, Jesus does something like this in the conclusion of the sermon. There are matters that pertain to judging. There's matters that pertain to prayer. There's matters that pertain, of course, to the golden rule. There's matters that pertain to the reality of uh, the gate and the way that leads to life and the options that are set before us in terms of life and death. There's the problem of false prophets that Jesus mentions. And then there's the matter of deception. People who are simply deceived and think everything is well with them and God when everything is not. And Jesus likes to pull... Uh, the, the wool, uh, pull the uh, pull back the curtain of the reality of um, deception and the real uh, the real matter of, of importance is not what we say it's not even so much the things that we do did we not do all these things in your name it's the matter of simple obedience he who hears these words and does them he who hears these words and does them is like the wise man who builds his house on a rock. Now the fool hears these words also. It's not a question of that one hears and the other doesn't necessarily. It's what you do with what you hear. The wise man hears these words and does them. The fool hears these words and does them not. It's obedience doing the will of my Father in heaven. It's, work, it's, being, it's being workers of righteousness and not of lawlessness. And again, that's just so vital that the character of the, of, of, of the Christian is seen as that which feeds into the rest because, you know, when you put the put it the other way, when you put the, the cart before the horse, <laughs> it's, you can't really live the Christian life on that basis. You can't live the Christian life just because somebody's scolding you to do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Here are all the rules. Keep all the rules. How do I keep the rules? When my heart has not been made poor in spirit, when my spirit has not come to the place of mourning, my own sins and transgressions, I've not been brought to the place of meekness. I think the world owes me a living and the world owes me fame and the world owes me this and if the world doesn't give it to me I'm sour on the world and if God doesn't give it to me he's broke his covenant with me there are people that say that oh, God's broken the deal with me long ago I, I told him if I would be a Christian and I'd follow him he'd give me this 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 and this no no 
He never promised you any such thing. And to have a heart of bitterness and enmity and, and uh, reviling God um, and being insubmissive towards His providence, that's just the opposite of a meek spirit. That's a proud, self-willed spirit. And so, in a real sense, unless these things have been wrought in our souls, the talk about the doing of the Sermon on the Mount is ridiculous. There's a movement in the early part, well, late part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, which was called liberalism. Now, I know, we, get, we use the term liberal rather loosely today. It's anybody that doesn't agree with us about everything we think about what the Bible teaches. We say he's a liberal. He's a liberal. Well, you may just have a different understanding of what the Bible teaches. Not necessarily is he a liberal. There are a lot of people that affirm a biblical, biblical authority that, are, that, that, that baptize their children. And I'll say, well, they're liberal because they baptize their children. There's a long history of Bible-believing Christians that did that very thing. And there's a long history of Bible-believing Christians that thought many different things about the way we think about things. And so, But there was actually something called liberalism. And what liberalism did is it denied supernaturalism. It denied anything having to do with Jesus being risen from the dead, anything to do with miracles, anything to do with the reality of God actually intervening in human history in any clear or substantial way. The universe was just natural. Nothing ever happened to uh, intervene in the course of cause and effect from the beginning. Uh, God's never entered into human history. They're scoffers. They turn Christianity into a very natural religion. Something you could reason out, something you could come to on your own without the Bible. No, you know, the Bible was useful if it agreed with you. And so these people thought that, well, we were reading the Bible and we see this matter of the Sermon on the Mount. Man, that's really lovely stuff that Jesus is talking about there. He's talking about loving your enemy, he's talking about turning the other cheek, he's talking about being peaceable, he's talking about merciful, being merciful. And that really is in accordance with much of the liberal agenda, much of the things that they thought were the things of greatest of religious importance. No blood atonement, no thought about... Again, they were denying fundamental truths of the Word of God. But they gravitated to the Sermon on the Mount. You'd have a lot of them say, my religion is the Sermon on the Mount. Well, you got a a little problem there, is that you're probably not reading carefully what the Sermon on the Mount requires. Because if you're carefully reading the Sermon on the Mount and the things that Jesus is saying, you begin to look at yourself and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, I, ne- I don't do this stuff. And secondly, I, I probably never will do this stuff. And I have no desire to do this stuff. Because the whole presupposition of the Sermon on the Mount is the Gospel and the power of a new birth and the power of the grace of God that writes His law within our hearts and in our minds and actually produces the kind of character that makes us desirous and willing to be doing the Sermon on the Mount. So, you can't read the Sermon on the Mount and not see the whole theology of the Bible really there. It's really there. And it has to begin with the miraculous reality of of a God who quickens the spiritually dead and makes them to be spiritually alive. There's that remarkable miracle of divine grace that 
is the greatest miracle of all. The miracle of the transformation of the human heart and the, and the act of a new creation and the act of the bringing Christian character to birth within the hearts and minds of the people of God. Well, we're, we, we're going to be not so much down here. That's the overview of what's there. But just remember, when we embrace this and see Christian character, and you say to yourself, well, how does this all get worked out? Well, that's where the rest of the sermon comes in. Gets worked out in all these relationships of life. Well, I hope it's helpful. And um, may God be pleased to bless our studies over the summer. And I hope it will be a fruit in our lives to his glory. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the fullness of the counsel we find in Holy Scripture. We're thankful that we can be whole Bible Christians. We can recognize our Lord's own words that affirm every part of Scripture, all of Scripture, down to the smallest letter, the smallest part of a letter, that all these things have pertinence and significance and meaning. And yet, Lord, in understanding all that, we know that we cannot live the Christian life. We cannot serve you with any measure of acceptance if our hearts are not transformed, if there's not the power of a new birth, if there's not the reality of a new creation, if there's not the inworking in, in through the Holy Spirit of the graces and the character that constitutes Christian life and constitutes Christian experience. And so we pray we would recognize this and we would be taking care to who and what we are before you, even before we think about what we're supposed to be doing in the world. And then, Lord, as we see what we are to be before you, give us, we pray, the wisdom. Give us the the love. Give us the strength. Give us the resolve. Give us the perseverance to be doing your will in every aspect of life that you've called us to honor you, where you call us to be your servants. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your people. We ask you to bless our time to come when we greet one another and have refreshments together. And as we enter into the morning hour, we ask you to hear our prayers as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.